Good Monday morning, and welcome to another episode of the podcast, Insanity, A Peace of Mind. I am your host, Stephanie. I am recording episode 131, and I'm going to continue to tease out and discuss the concepts of control and influence in our predominantly parent-child relationships, but also in our more personal relationships, partners, friends. And as I have thought about it and researched it and continued to think about it, what I have realized is that it is easy to discuss control and a lot more difficult to discuss influence. So I'm going to make a very general statement about influence because in talking with my husband, we had this conversation about how it doesn't need to be based in a relationship to be able to take influence or have influence over another person. And while I agree with that, I am speaking almost specifically to these very personal relationships, most prominently parent and child relationships. So we can be influenced by any number of people or any number of things. And what that means is someone or something or some entity provides information and as free thinking people, we make a choice as to whether or not we want that information to influence us. And so in that regard, it's not important that there be a relationship or an emotional connection, which is what I'm going to get to in this podcast. All it requires is that as a independent, free thinking human being, you decide whether what this person has to offer by way of information or knowledge is something you want to have impact your life in any way. That is influence. And so it's not coercion, it's not manipulation, although it can be, but ostensibly it's just information. And I think there needs to be a clarification because I do believe we are influenced by many things, many people, and many experiences. Talking about influence in the parent-child relationship, I'm finding very difficult because reference to the phrase emotional connection seems so untethered to anything concrete or describable. And so I keep saying it and I keep feeling like there are big holes in this explanation or this phrase. And so I'm going to try and go through a handful, probably about 10 ways of creating and building this emotional connection so that you have a base from which to influence. Emotional connection to our children comes when we don't feel the need to be right 
when we don't feel the need to be good and when we are not making our children responsible for our parenting successes or failures. I'm going to say that again, maybe a different way. If we use our children to get our needs met, meaning my child needs to be a good child who graduates from high school and goes on to a good college so that I can feel good about myself. That is using my child to get a need met. My need is that in order to be a good parent, my child has to fulfill these certain expectations. If they don't, I feel shame. I'm embarrassed. I may have, I may hide what my child is doing. I may withdraw from friends and family because I can't tolerate the disappointment that I'm feeling because my child did not meet these expe expectations. That is me requiring my child and his or her behavior to take care of my needs. And you can do that with almost anything your children do. And so you cannot be emotionally connected to a child who feels the responsibility to take care of their parents because that is actually disconnecting. So that's one way that you cannot be emotionally connected. You cannot be emotionally connected if there is shame in the relationship on either side. So if we use shame and guilt as a way to motivate or manipulate our child to decrease certain behaviors and increase other behaviors, then we are not emotionally connected. Now, these are not definitives. There's plenty of opportunity in all of the time that we spend with our parents and with our children to have emotional connections. So I'm speaking in broad brush strokes, but I also don't want to give a pass if the primary way you interact with your child is through guilt and shame or making them attend to your needs because it's a very hmm i don't know what the word is it's 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 hard to detect but it operates at a very unconscious level so i am telling you these things and i'm being pretty hard hitting so that you pay very close attention to how you are in these relationships with your children. Because these behaviors that I'm talking about are not emotionally connecting. So I'm going to move into describing some ways that you can build that emotional connection. The first one is to talk about the difference between discipline and punishment. Most people are pretty clear on the idea that discipline comes from a word that is rooted in disciple, and disciple is all about teaching. So discipline is very different than punishment. Punishment is punitive. Punishment is a way to very often shame a child. Very often when we punish our children, it's because they are not meeting our expectations 
therefore they're not fulfilling our needs and we have no ability to sit with that discomfort and so punishment is the way we deal with it kids mess up that is a given their job is to figure out how to operate in the world and that will just mean they'll mess up and when they mess up the consequences should be driven by the lessons that you want them to learn so these are generally natural consequences and logical consequences so let's do an example let's say your daughter said she was going to a friend's house to study and you find out later that there was no studying but it was a party and on the surface she went to the same house she was with more or less the same people but it was not about studying it was about partying and so what is the actual offense here is the offense the party or is the offense that she told you one thing and actually did another so it looks like the offense is the lie i'm going to sarah's house to study and it was a party instead how do you let consequences logical in this instance rule this situation and it's probably best to address the dishonesty and the dishonesty it may have been slight but it's still dishonest and so it's the dishonesty that needs to be addressed and so that conversation would be different than just depriving your child of the next party she wants to go to you have to address the fact that she chose to lie about what she was doing at this person's house so the consequences might look more like a grounding right but in that grounding it's not about again it's not about a loss of specific privileges it's about acknowledging that if you can't trust her then it doesn't feel comfortable for you or to you to let her go out so you could say something like i want to be able to trust you and to give you the freedom to go and do things but if i can't trust you to use that i feel like i have to keep it in reserve so the the consequences or the trade-off or the compromise whatever it is i don't think these are any of the words that i'm looking for but you can have freedom you can have trust when you give me honesty and so the conversation you're having and it is a conversation because remember you're not trying to punish you're trying to teach and you're trying to discipline and discipline is about these moments in time where you allow your child to learn a lesson instead of just be mad that she has been given a loss of privileges so you talk about needing to build the trust again and then you could potentially engage her in helping to come up with ways to do that give her say in the actual discipline and 
if they don't meet the standard of the consequences that you think are appropriate, then you can negotiate further and you can make other suggestions. So she may suggest that she doesn't get to go out that weekend. And you may think that it needs to be a little bit longer than that weekend. And so you have every right to set, to extend that limit to something that you are more comfortable with, that you believe will be more effective in teaching the lesson that in order for you to offer the freedom and the opportunity for your child to go out and do things, she has to offer up honesty in return. And so what you're doing is you're you're creating a specific amount of time that allows for that trust to continue to be built and to show that in the going to school and coming right home from school and going to the grocery store and coming right home from the grocery store and all of those things that she will still be doing, she is trustworthy in doing those things. So that's the difference between discipline and punishment. The next one is, it is possible that sometimes what a child does that is wrong, so to speak, does not need any consequences at all. I don't know if it's ever happened to you, but I have actually had children who have done something wrong and they have admitted it up front right away. And we've just talked about it. There's been gratitude for the honesty and the expression of whatever it is that they did was wrong. And generally the conversation indicates to me that they have learned a lesson. If I'm operating from a place of control or power, I'm inclined to punish or to add a consequence, or even if I'm not going to punish, I'm still, I still might be inclined to add a consequence or to nag or lecture or belabor this moment so that I can prove a point or so that I can teach a lesson. And that's not always necessary when the child comes and acknowledges and admits that they have made some sort of a mistake. They have come and trusted you with this information, which is really difficult for a young person. And the effort that it took them to come and have this conversation with you should be enough. And you can be pleased that they came and you can still be disappointed in whatever it is they tell you. And that's happened to me a lot, actually. And mm, as often as not, the admission of a wrongdoing was enough. And sometimes there did need to be consequences. But in those moments, they were generally talked about and agreed upon, much like I described um, in the earlier example. Okay, another one is to just acknowledge and validate. And sometimes we get really tired of the word validate, but it is incredibly valuable because all people have big feelings. Adults have big feelings. We just have a better way of controlling them or alternatively, we stuff them down into our pockets and our shoes and our socks and we bury them deep and we don't feel them at all. However, kids don't do that. They feel their big feelings. And sometimes these big feelings make our children do things that are pretty unpleasant and things that we don't like. 
And that's actually a really good thing because what that tells you is that they are human. So there is a phrase in therapy and basically in just relating with kids where you name it to tame it. So if you see a big feeling happening in your child of any age, it is useful to acknowledge it by its name, right? So anger is usually just your self telling you that you are upset at something, right? So anger is, I am sad because my sister and her friends left me. And in that sadness, I lash out at my little brother and I ruined his Lego tower. So big feeling comes out as anger is actually sadness. And I ruined someone else's playtime. So as a parent, the idea behind this is to acknowledge it and say, hey, it looks like you're really having some big feelings about being left. And that makes sense. I understand that you would be really upset. Is there, is there a feeling that you're feeling and you can help the child identify the feeling left out, sad, abandoned, ignored, and naming it actually tames it. And it helps the child to say, oh, I understand what's going on for me. Research has actually shown that labeling these emotions physiologically soothes the nervous system. It's like providing information to that dysregulated state. And that information is taken in by that dysregulated nervous system and says, oh, thank you. It gives space for the dysregulated child to calm down and explore how the whatever's going on is driving the emotion. The child who is expressing extreme anger because she's sad and feeling left out that her sister left might need help figuring out how to get that need met another way. And this naming it and taming it acknowledging it and validating it helps slow that process down. And then depending on the age and depending on the development of the child, you can help the child figure out ways to get that left out need met or that sadness need met because of what happened. You might suggest that she try and schedule a specific time or a specific thing to do with her sister over the weekend. You might help her explore and find ways to spend time by herself. There are lots of ways to deal with it, but you can't deal with it when they are in a dysregulated state. They're not using their thinking brain, which in children is extremely underdeveloped anyway. So your acknowledging and validating really helps them figure out how to address these big feelings. What you are telling them in that exchange or that experience with them is that you are okay with their big emotions. You are okay that they were felt and expressed. You also indicated that you are not okay with the behavior that followed. Knocking down someone else's Lego tower is not a good way to express your big feelings. And you've made that clear also. 
you've basically stated that you can see that there is sadness and feelings of being left out there and that it's okay to have those feelings. It is not okay to behave aggressively because of those feelings. And there are apologies that probably need to happen because someone else was hurt in this exchange. But the most important thing here is that your child learned that you are okay with her big emotions. You did not yell. You did not tell her that she cannot feel that way. You didn't tell her that she's too young to hang out with her sister and her friends anyway, and she shouldn't feel bad. You didn't try and distract her. You just let her know that you acknowledge and validate those feelings. That is emotionally connecting. Another way is to offer up words of understanding before you jump into advice giving consequences or requests. This is a little bit like validating. And let me be clear, understanding the way somebody behaves or validating somebody else's experience is not agreement. It just means that you are willing to sit with their experience and look at things through their eyes. I talk to my daughter about this all the time because, you know, she's working on this acknowledgement and validating. And sometimes it's really hard because it is literally ridiculous to believe for one minute that validating a three-year-old's dysregulated state means that you agree with them. Because if, you know, adult adults agree with three-year-olds very often about their big emotions or their emotionally dysregulated states, that would be a weird world because children are ridiculous. They're irrational. They don't, they get upset about very often irrational things. And so recognizing that you can validate a three-year-old without agreeing that she should be able to run around outside naked makes it easier to realize that you can agree with your 17-year-old who believes that he should have free, unfettered access to the keys to the family car. I get that you want to run around naked outside. It probably feels really good. I totally understand that having access to the car would be really advantageous to you. So you are agreeing that their perspective has some merit. Okay, that is an emotionally connecting moment that then allows for an actual conversation. If I just say to my child, you can't run around outside naked, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Nobody does that. You have to have your clothes on. That is interpreted by your child as shame and guilt. Like, oh my gosh, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to want to run around outside naked. They're three, not 12. And again, your 17-year-old, honestly, probably because they are pretty underdeveloped, didn't know that they weren't supposed to want unfettered access to the family car. From their perspective, this makes perfect sense. So agreeing that 
that makes sense to them allows a moment where they don't feel stupid. They don't feel ashamed. They're not embarrassed for what they said or thought or believed. And then, and then they're open for conversation, consequences, advice, whatever needs to happen. A caveat to that 17 year old who probably thinks it's perfectly normal to ask for unfettered access to the car. Let's assume for a moment that your 17 year old knows that's a silly or a ridiculous request, right? Because as I was thinking about that after, it's entirely possible that the older child who's asking for something or expressing something really does know that it's probably not normal or whatever. The illustration of how to respond to it is exactly the same because if that child can make a play for access to the family car and get it, then kudos to him because he asked and he got what he wanted because you'll never get anything you want if you don't ask for it. But the response is exactly the same. It's not, are you kidding? I can't even believe you asked that. That's so ridiculous. What makes you think that would ever happen? The understanding and offering up words of understanding still makes sense. Oh gosh, it makes sense that that's what you would want. I totally know how nice that would be for you if I could just let you have the car anytime you wanted. So it's still words of understanding, right? And with that opening up of understanding and they realize that you get it, they will be more open to whatever advice or requests you have for them. And they'll be able to take on some lessons that you might want to teach them. So I understand how important it is for you to have access to a car. I get that that's what you need. And it was wrong that you took the car without asking. And we need to talk about that because I don't think you thought you were doing the wrong thing. I don't think that you thought I was going to be mad about you taking the car. And then you can talk about what the consequences are or why that is not okay or what your requests are in the future or what the consequences for having done it might be. But they know that you got it. The three-year-old who likes to run around naked outside. Again, you can have a conversation about, I know that it just felt good to be outside running around. And I know that you didn't think there was anything about that that I would be angry or frustrated about. And then you can just have this conversation about when it's appropriate and when it's not appropriate to be nakey nakey, right? Okay, next one is letting the limits that you are going to set for anything be on the behavior, not needs, not wants, wishes, or feelings. What this means is that all feelings are okay. Because they are. All feelings are okay. What's not okay is behavior. So if you go back to the girl whose sister left with her friends and she was left and she's sad 
and it comes out in anger and aggressive behavior to her brother. That's not okay. Kids don't stop being angry because we say, stop being angry, or you have no right to be mad about that, or punishing them for their anger. That is not how, that is not how you stop somebody from being anger, angry. And it's really funny because if you tend to be the kind of parent, and I certainly was, who was uh, triggered. I mean, I didn't think I was triggered because I didn't even use that word and eh, whatever. But if I got mad because my kid got mad, or if I was angry because of the way my kid was reacting to something that happened, and I send them to the room because they're angry, or I you know, tell them that they have no right to feel that way, and I tell them that they have to go to their room because they're yelling or whatever. There is no place in the adult realm where this would happen. And I probably shouldn't actually have gone there. But my point is, we have a very different standard for the way we handle children's big emotions and dysregulated states than the way we handle adults big emotions and dysregulated states. I realize that adults are often better at managing those feelings, but if they aren't, or if the situation or circumstance is dysregulated, very few adults yell at other adults or tell them to go to their room or tell them that they can't feel the way they're feeling. And so there is a huge double standard here. So the limits need to be on be on the behavior. So if a child feels jealous or frustrated or impatient or every any other feeling that annoys us, we don't punish the feeling. They can feel it. They can feel it in front of you. They can feel it in their room. They can feel it in the family room. It doesn't matter where they feel it. They just can't behave badly because of it. So this is where you offer them up ways and places and circumstances that they can express these even behaviorally without hurting or having the behavior something that is disruptive or un- um, or, or forbidden. Okay. So for example, you have, it's easy to use children. It's easy, easy to use toddlers. So you have a toddler, toddler's really angry with you. He wants to do something that you're not going to let him do. And so he takes his frustration out by hitting you and he's hitting and he's hitting your legs and he's hitting your belly and he's pushing and he's mad. The feeling is okay. Wanting something is okay. And you say that that's okay. I can see that you are really frustrated with me that I took your toy away. And I can see that you really want to get that big feeling out. So instead of hitting me or another person, you can hit a pillow. And so you offer up an option. And you can do this with little children and you can figure out how to do it with bigger children too. You can help them figure out a way to express their feelings 
physically. If they're older, do they play the piano? Do they play the drums? Do they like to run? Do you have a trampoline? Do you have a punching bag? Do they have a particular exercise they like to do? Do they want to hit their pillow or scream into their pillow? There's plenty of ways to help a child express big feelings behaviorally without hurting someone. When they are not able to do that and they actually follow up a big feeling with a bad behavior, it is okay to set a boundary around what that behavior punishment, excuse me, what the discipline or what the consequence might be for that behavior, not punishment. That was a slip of the tongue. So this helps them know that they can trust you. They can trust you with what they're feeling. You did not tell them to go to their room. You did not tell them to not be upset. Anytime you tell a child or anybody else for that matter to not feel a feeling, you are controlling them. You are saying to them, what you are going through right now is so uncomfortable to me that you have to stop it. Why do we do that? Why did I do that? Why would I do that now? It doesn't make any sense at all. When that is the message that your children grow up with, they grow up to be adults who have no idea how to identify their feelings and what to do with the big ones because nobody ever named it and nobody ever helped them tame it. So set limits on the behavior and let them have needs and wants and wishes and feelings with no shame, no guilt, and no suppression. All right, the next one is to have strong limits and let your kids disagree or dislike or object or negotiate. Because if your kids don't have the opportunity to disagree or object or offer up themselves for a negotiation, you're raising people pleasers. Because the most important relationships and the relationships that have the biggest impact in terms of intimacy and basically just time spent are relationships in their families. If a child cannot disagree with a parent, if a child cannot use their own mind in their own family and be given the opportunity to disagree or to say no, or to find the words to express dissatisfaction, where are they going to learn that? Our need to keep our children agreeable makes them more susceptible to all kinds of peer pressure. The safest relationship should be the relationships in their family where they can disagree, say no, state an objection, 
and still be loved and accepted and valued and honored in their ability to use their own mind and their own brain. And I can't tell you how many times I shut that down or found that objectionable to me or told my kids that they shouldn't disagree or object or talk back or whatever phrase I used, did it. I probably did it all the time. And it's just plain wrong because then the children grow up to be teenagers who grow up to be young adults who grow up to be adults who don't have any practice or capacity objecting or having an opinion or saying no or negotiating a better deal for lack of a better word. So it's okay to have strong limits and let your kids know what those limits are. And then it's better to let them respectfully, because that can be a boundary. You can say all objections, all discussions, all negotiations are on the table in our family as long as they are respectful. All disagreements are open and welcome as long as they are done respectfully. You are a, you are allowed to say no to me as long as it is done respectfully. And then you still have the role as a parent to make a final decision. And the more open you are with this, and the more you give them say in whatever it is, even if it pushes your buttons or you don't like it, the more they will feel valued, the more practice they will have, and the less likely they will be to be a people pleaser. And they will learn to trust their own judgment and they will be open to your influence and guidance. So an example of this, I have a lot of young people who are members of the um, predominant religion in the state of Utah, LDS, and I have them as young as nine and all the way up to, you know, in their 20s and 30s who are trying to distance themselves or, okay, that's not the right word. They're trying to figure out how to have honest conversations with their parents about it could be as simple as not wanting to go to young men's. It could be as um, middle of the road as I don't want to go to church every Sunday. And it could be as big and seemingly heavy as I don't believe in this religion anymore and I don't want to practice it and I don't want to talk about it. So it runs the gamut. What I see over and over and over again is the absolute inability for any of these children, okay? I don't care if they're nine. I don't care if they're 29 to have a conversation with their parents where they say, I don't agree. I don't believe. I don't think so. 
because the shame and the guilt and the manipulation and the loss of the relationship is too scary. All those things are too scary because there has never been any place in these families for anybody to say, I don't think so. I don't agree. I don't want to respectfully and then to have a discussion and potentially a negotiation and then a collaborative decision made, even if that collaborative decision was made by the parent who has the final say. But because these kids have never been able to say no or to disagree or to have a contrary view or opinion about anything, they certainly can't have contrary opinions or views about big things. And that is why it is important to let your children object and offer up disagreements. And then you can have boundaries around it. If their disaffection at 17 years old is coupled with insults and derogatory comments and insults, if I did, I think I probably already said insults. I don't know. If those things are attached to their disaffection and they're directed and aimed at you and other people in the family, you are welcome to have a strong limit and a boundary around that where you say, I am okay with these conversations that are that are that are difficult and you're sharing your opinion and we're talking about things that we believe or we don't believe what i'm not okay with are the insults and the derogatory comments and the shaming and the the evangelizing of your siblings okay you can have boundaries like that all right so the next one is to offer choices Choices are fantastic and they are a great way to help kids make decisions and to reduce your angst. Kids and teens are stuck between wanting to be more grown up, have more independence, find out what they're capable of, and they need to be taken care of and protected by their parents. And they know that and they want that. They can have both. It is okay for you to Offer up as much choice as possible so they can have both. Being close as parents and children and having limits still allows kids to have power as long as the parents don't feel like they have to have it all. So you empower them by giving them choices within the limits that you have set. I think I first learned in Love and Logic that the more choices you can give your kids, the better off the relationship is, the more independent they become, the more, I mean, the research shows that choice and letting your kids have choice is really good for their development. It's good for their self-esteem and their self-worth. It improves your relationship and you have to give them choices that are within your limits. If you give a five-year-old the opportunity to choose what she wears to school, make sure she's choosing out of things that you are okay with. That's the caveat. You have to be okay with whatever the choice is. And that's the same with teenagers and young adults. You empower them by giving them choices within the limits that you've set. So it would look like um, maybe staying up late. Um, It makes sense that you want to stay up later and it's important to have a good night's sleep on 
school nights. And so you can go to bed anytime you want on Fridays or Saturdays. And during the week, you need to be in bed at this specific time. So you have given them, that's not so much giving them choice, but that's letting them know that there is room for negotiation and that you have seen that there's something they want and you're trying to offer that to them. Um, you can let your kids choose their own shoes. You can let them choose which coat they want to wear, what they want to eat. Uh, eating is a big thing. Uh, I should do an entire series on feeding children. But again, as long as it's within your boundaries, within the rules you set, within what you are okay with, giving them choice is a real good thing. And it's a very connecting thing because it's so trusting. They realize that you trust them and that is emotionally connecting. All right. If they, here's another one. If they're old enough, let them take part in creating rules and discussions. So you will have rules that are non-negotiable and that's fine. You are the parent. You have the right to have the final say on many, many, many things, but there are so many things you don't have to care about in that way. One of the pieces of advice that I have been giving people um, for probably, I don't know, maybe seven, eight, nine years now is please don't care about the things that you don't have to care about. Please don't care about the things you don't have to care about. And this is where this falls into place. Let your kids have a say. If they can come up with something that they are in agreement with, even if it's not perfect, it will save you so much grief, right? So if you have a, oh, let's see, if you have a rule that you expect their rooms to be clean, and that is something that you're struggling with because you're not, the kids are not meeting your expectations. They're not cleaning it the way you want them to. Bring them into this discussion. Bring them into this compromise and negotiation and come up with a way where you can be satisfied with something and you know that they will have buy-in because they had part of, they, they took part in coming up with the actual compromise. Compromise being two people don't get what they want. They only get a piece of what they want and realize where you can be okay with things. I talked to a mom a few weeks ago and she was really questioning why she had such a strong reaction to kind of what she referred to as backtalk or sassing. And she made a brilliant observation because she said, my life sure would be easier if I didn't care about this. Well, yes, wouldn't it? So don't care about what you don't need to and let your kids take part in the discussion of rules and consequences. The more you teach them that you are open to what they think and what they feel and what they need and value their input, the more that they will return to favor it and appreciate it and find value in the rules and expectations and consequences that you have in the house when it's really important. This is emotionally connecting. Next one is kind of a doozy, I think. Do not take their mistakes personally. If you take your child's mistakes personally, then you are making them 
be in charge of you. You are getting your needs met by your children. All human beings have been given a gift, and this gift is the gift of agency. Agency requires us to make choices. Some of those choices might not be so great. And when parents cannot hold space for their child's mistakes, just as them learning and growing and developing a self, but instead take them personally and say things like, what could I have done differently? Where did I go wrong? Why have you done this? That messaging tells the child that they are responsible for how you feel and they are responsible to take care of you. And children cannot take care of their parents. They can hardly take care of themselves. And so we are trying to teach them to take care of themselves. But what we accidentally teach them is how to take care of us. And that's a hard thing to get out of if that's what you've been taught. We cannot do their growing and learning for them. We cannot go through their lives with them making all of their choices so they don't, quote, make mistakes, unquote. Getting too involved in their mistakes makes our responses usually angry and frustrated or sad and hopeless, which are heavy, heavy emotions and heavy feelings for our kids to carry for us. So my kid makes a mistake and I acknowledge that the mistake is made. With any luck, there will be some natural consequences to that mistake. If not natural, I can come up with some logical consequences like we've talked about, and we can collaboratively work through whatever has to happen because of this mistake. And sometimes those mistakes are going to be small and sometimes they're going to be big and the big ones are hard and I get that but we cannot jump in and fix it. The desire to fix is an effort to control. The desire to fix is, well, the desire to fix is natural. Let me say that. The desire to fix is natural. The actual fixing is control. So you have to figure out how to work out your desire to fix somewhere else. Your kids need to know that their mistakes are their own and they're going to have to deal with them, experience the consequences, work out their problems, make amends, or whatever it is they have to do because of them. When they know you will not jump in to fix, they will be a lot more willing to be honest and open and connected to you. All right, I think the last one I'm gonna do is it is important to be available. So I did a podcast with my girls a while ago, and I can't remember exactly which one it was, but I was asking them 
uh, about parenting, about their experiences. And one of them, I believe it was Reagan, she said, if you tell your kids that they can tell you anything, and that is the culture that you are trying to create in your family, you better be prepared to hear anything, which means get your own stuff figured out. Be able to listen to them. You need to be capable of holding your reactions, your responses at bay so that they know you are listening. They know you are open to hearing them. You want them to know that what they have to say is important to you. If it's important to them, it is important to you. And this starts with the little things. If we want them to come to us with the big things when they're older, because that's just the developmental stage of things, it's little things when they're little and it's big things when they're older. We need to be available, attentive, and responsive to the little things when they're younger. So all of their little feelings, all of their little big feelings, all of the big feelings they have when they're little, all of the little feelings they have when they're little, all of the big feelings they have when they're big, and all the little feelings they have when they're big. You need to be there for all of them. And that's a lot of work. It's not easy. It's exhausting. This kind of emotionally connected parenting is really, really effortful. It is a big job. And if you had kids, then you signed up for the job, even if you didn't know it. And we have this conversation all the time as therapists, but even as parents who are kind of finding our way into this new way of parenting, you're going to do the work. You're either going to do the work emotionally connecting with your child so that you are raising a child who grows up to know his emotions, understand her emotions, express them, be willing to communicate with you, be open, or you are going to do the work dealing with addictions, substance use, self-harm, suicide ideation, anxiety, or depression. Either way, you're doing the work. I, it is really quite shocking how many parents are more willing to do the work when we, they run into behavioral problems and issues that cannot be ignored anymore than doing them on the front end by actually sitting down and listening to their child. And I'm not, I'm trying not to be snarky or mean, but it is really, really quite mind boggling how many people wait until there is no option but to address huge concerns when what they should have been doing is the work making emotional connections. This is a long one. This is important. And I hope that this has done the job that I have not felt like I have really done yet of identifying ways to emotionally connect to your children. This isn't about loving them. I know that you love them. This isn't about telling them that you love them. They know that you love them. This isn't about providing food and shelter and clothing. They know that you love them and they know that you do that. This is not about being their chauffeur or taking them to their sports or paying for their cheer camps. They know you love them. This is about really getting into the difficult work of saying, I see you, I hear you, 
and I want to understand you. The quote I'm going to leave you with is Dr. Brad Reedy, and it perfectly encapsulates his work and what I am trying to show in this podcast. Parenting skills and principles don't change children. They change parents. And that change in a parent can have a wonderful impact on a child. And have a great week. 